Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Aren't stories like that just incredible? Isn't that why we do this is so we can have more and more stories like Madison's? So uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we're able to capture some of those stories so we can share them because I don't know about you, but I find that deeply encouraging uh, that we're a church that is mission-minded, that we care about people, that we want to see people uh, come to have faith and come to grow in that faith. So that's the kind of church I love being a part of. Uh, I'm so glad I'm able to come share some things with you uh, today. Um, if you haven't been a part of the church for a while, my name is Tom. I am uh, able to serve on the pastoral team as the executive pastor, and uh, I love what I'm able to do. I love being able to come and share this with you, and a couple of weeks ago, we started a two-week series uh, that we just called Passion and Growth, and we looked at those two ideas about what it means to have a passionate faith, what it means to have a faith that is growing, that our relationship with God is growing as we passionately pursue Him. And we started that two weeks ago, and so here we are um, on week three of this two-week series. Um, so this is bonus week. So this is bonus week today, and I want to start by giving a disclaimer uh, we're going to start getting into some things that um, there is a lot that the Bible speaks to on the subject that we're going to be looking at today. And uh, if you're driving home and you turn to your spouse and you say, I'm surprised he didn't say that verse or he didn't sort of talk at it from this angle. And I'll say, I know I'm surprised he didn't either. But I just wanted to let you know that we're going to be talking about obedience, about the nature of God as rule giver, uh, as God as, uh, who gave laws, who gave commandments, and how we live with all that in the light of the New Testament, in the light of the cross, and what all that means to us. Uh, this is a giant topic, but as we look at it specifically with the idea of living a passionate life of faith, living a, a life of faith that is growing and we're wanting to continue to grow in our relationship with God and grow closer to Him, how this uh, idea of obedience comes into play and how it works for us and how we should think about that in our lives as we are pursuing God in a life of faith. And I was uh, reminded this week as we, you know, as I was getting some thoughts down about the nature of rules, uh, one of the things that hit me is that you only put a rule in place uh, if somebody has broken that rule and you don't want it to happen again. So uh, this, I have a picture. Don't put it up yet, guys. I want to just set this up. Um, so I think it was around 2014. Megan and I, we moved to uh, a small rural town in Montana, and we took on a pastoral position at a church there. And so we're in rural Montana, and when I say rural, I mean it was less than 1,000 people. You can't drink the tap water. It was a small, small town. And then not long after we got there, we decided to take the kids to the playground in town. Um, let me reiterate, the only playground in town. Um, and I took a picture of something interesting while I was there. So guys, can we put that up? I'd love to show everyone. This is a picture that I took. No dogs all livestock. Now, you know the only reason this sign is up is that some bozo brought a cow to the playground. <laughs> you don't make rules just for the sake of it. You make rules to fix problems. You make rules because you need somebody to not do something again. As something comes up, as a problem comes up, it's like slap a rule on it. Hopefully, that'll start to fix things up. For those of you that may be listening to the podcast after the fact, the sign said no livestock in the playground. Um, some would think you'd just assume that, but there's a sign, so you know what happened. But one thing uh, Megan and I have decided when we're raising our kids, uh, so we have a nine-year-old son and then we have seven-year-old twins, and we've kind of started somewhat of a mantra in the house of um, don't obey the rules, make good choices, then the rules will take care of themselves. 
And so the, trying to teach that to them is that what we hope is that, you know, at nine and seven, that they learn that really the way to go through life is, is not simply leaning on the rules and relying on the rules and being restricted by the rules, but it's just having the ability to make these good choices to not bring your cow to the playground so that you're not a slave to rules, but you can live with this idea that I'm able to make good choices. Now, please keep in mind, we don't live in a hippie commune. Um, Of course, we have rules and things like this, but ride with me on this. The hope is that as they grow into teenage years and as they become adults, that what we're able to do is ground in them, this is the values of our house. This is the values that mom and dad have. This is who we are. This is what we're about. This is what we get upset about. This is, what we, this is how we forgive. All these things, we hope that Meg and I are able to transfer our values to the kids so that when they're grown up enough that they have to start making choices, they're not doing it based on what they are and are not allowed to do, but they're doing it based on the, I've now mature enough to make a good decision. Like I said, this isn't foolproof. Please don't think that we have a house where there's no rules in our home, but that's the hope is that they're able to mature to that point where the rules aren't driving them anymore but the ability to make a good, mature, solid decision is going to take care of the rules all by itself rather than being a slave to the rules. See, obedience out of obligation is neat and tidy. You want something cleaned up, slap a rule on it, enforce the rule, it gets cleaned up real quick. But obedience out of passion, I believe, brings joy. Obedience that is born out of a willingness, out of a sincerity, out of an agreement that yes, this is the best way to do things, that comes from a place of joy, not a place of obligation. Suddenly obedience stops being half-hearted and it stops being done reluctantly, but instead obedience becomes something that is done with joy and a spring in your step because you trust that whatever it is that is asking to do something, so as we're talking about a life of faith, as God is asking something of his people, there's a trust that we have like, yes, you are right, I'm going to follow, and it is done with joy rather than reluctance. This is the hope, and so this is kind of the topic that I wanted to go at, and you'll remember last week, if you're able to be a part of service, we looked at uh, a verse from Philippians 3. If you weren't able to be a part of service last week, I encourage you to check it out, uh, catch up online, uh, either on our YouTube channel or on our podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those yet, it's a great way to be able to catch up with service if you're unable to be a part of being here. But last week, we looked at Paul, and Paul's saying with confidence, with a great deal of humility, that I'm not perfect. I haven't got this all figured out, but I'm committed to grow. And the invitation, and this was a lot from last week, is that we have an invitation to do the same. In light of how good God is, in light of the the incredible miracle that we're able to be in a relationship with him because of what happened on the cross, there's this invitation for us to join him in a growing, ongoing, growing relationship. And my belief is that as we passionately pursue him, and we talked about this the first week, that our values start to line up with God's values then suddenly that it will become instinctive for us to obey God and be in line with his values. As our hearts soften, as heart transformation takes place, our belief is that, that we'll start to be instinctive. It won't be a, a labor for us to be godly or do godly or act godly or do godly things. But as the Lord starts working on the inside, he starts to fix us up. As our thoughts come in line with his, then obedience comes from a place of joy rather than out of some mindless obligation. Because I don't know about you, it's difficult to be passionate about obligations. It's difficult to be passionate about rule keeping. It's difficult to be passionate about feeling that if I step out of line, I'm going to get smacked upside the head. But when we remember that God is a loving father, and what he says makes sense, and it works out, 
then suddenly this passionate pursuit and this role of obedience in that passionate pursuit starts to make a whole lot of sense. And we're going to get to a portion of Scripture in a moment. And in the New Testament, the New Testament is uh, the last quarter of your Bible. So if you have a, a Bible, you'll see that about three quarters of that is the Old Testament. And that's the account of God's interaction specifically with the nation of Israel, the story of God that gets us to the point where we're ready for the Savior to come. That's Jesus. And so the last quarter of the Bible is really talking about the life and the impact of Jesus on the world and the spread of the church. Uh, and really, it's, it's important for us to get those things in our lives so we can understand the heart of God and what he was up to. But the New Testament, it's made up um, of 27 books, 27 different books, uh, and 21 of those are epistles. Now, epistles is a word that you generally wouldn't hear outside of a church or outside of a faith environment. Uh, if it's a new word, it's really another word of saying a letter. It's a type of letter. Um, that was pretty typical in the first century. And there are 21 of these epistles or letters that we have. And what we learned in college is that these letters can be described as occasional letters. Now, occasional, not meaning it was written from time to time, but rather it was written due to an occasion. The letters that we have in the New Testament, the 21 letters that make up a large portion of the New Testament, were written to address something. Something had happened and someone needed to write a letter to fix what was happening. If you look at 1 Corinthians, um, or as we say in America, 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that it almost reads like somebody sent Paul a laundry list of problems happening in the church of Corinth. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians and he just goes through these one at a time about all the different problems that he needs to address as the overseer of that church because the letters were written to solve problems. And one of the constant problems that comes up in the New Testament letters is that the church and the church leaders and the apostles, they were teaching that they needed to have less emphasis on the Old Testament rules, the customs that had sprung up around first century Judaism, and they needed to have a greater focus on Christ and a greater focus on the Holy Spirit dwelling in their lives, fixing stuff up, bringing out the maturity to make decisions. And that was extremely controversial because as you can imagine, it's a lot neater and a lot tidier just to enforce the rules. And so there's constant pressure on the first century churches to just go back to the rules. And a lot of the time, a lot of the New Testament letters, especially Romans and especially Galatians, you'll see that these are written to sort of say, hold on, no, 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 there's a freedom that you need to embrace. The obedience that matters, it's going to come from a loving relationship with the Father. It's not going to come from just following the rules for the sake of following the rules. This was highly controversial in the first century, but still, the, first, uh, the New Testament writers would address this again and again and again. And so, we're going to read a passage from the book of Galatians, and here's no different. Some opponents had sprung up for Paul the Apostle. People were sort of saying a bunch of trash about him, and they were trying to encourage the church to revert back to the customs, revert to the traditions, revert to the rules um, that they were used to, and Paul had to write to bring some correction to this. And so, I'm going to go ahead, and we're going to get into... Galatians 5, let me read verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to a few other verses. So Galatians 5, verse 1, so Christ has truly set us free. That's his starting point. This is something important for Paul, is that you and I, if we are in Christ, we have freedom. Now make sure that you stay free, and you don't get tied up again in slavery to the Lord. Don't get yourself wrapped up again in religion. Now that you've been set free, stay free. Don't go back to putting confidence in the rules and the regulations and the policies and the things that have kept you tied up. Don't put your confidence in those things. Keep your confidence that your freedom is in Christ alone. 
I'm going to jump down to Galatians 5.22. A lot of you will be very familiar with this ver- this, uh, these verses. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. If the Holy Spirit is active in your heart and in my heart, if we have asked the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and take occupancy in our lives and he's at work and he's cleaned up the junk and we're passionately pursuing what the Holy Spirit's doing, this is what's going to happen in our lives. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, it's effortlessly, it's naturally just going to start spilling out of us. It's just going to start overflowing in our lives that this is the good stuff that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. And Paul puts possibly the best exclamation point I've ever read in my life as he lists off those things. There is no law against those things. If this is what's happening in someone's life, if this is how the Holy Spirit is getting involved, cleaning people up, realigning people's values, teaching them a better way, reinforcing all that Jesus said, how are we possibly going to start storming in with a bunch of rules and regulations and start telling them they're doing it wrong when the God of the universe is doing great things in and through their lives and it just keeps flowing out and out and out and out. This is good news. That when we passionately pursue him, the Lord is committed to get involved. And if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, then it just keeps moving out of us. It just keeps coming and coming. More peace, more patience, more joy, more self-control. It just keeps flowing out. And this is the passionate pursuit. This is the kind of obedience that I believe believers need to have a focus on, is that we just have our hearts transformed by the creator of the universe who is committed to do so. And if you're taking notes today, and it's a great habit that I highly encourage everyone to be a part of, but if you are taking notes, the first thing I'd ask you to write down is passion finds the joy in obedience. Passion finds the joy in obedience. This is, of course, our natural default is to grind against this. But obedience is oftentimes assumed and associated with something to be done out of reluctance or out of fear or obligation or something to be done half-heartedly, but that means that this is impossible. To live this joyful life of obedience, I would say it is impossible without our hearts being transformed to his will. Without the Holy Spirit being involved, transforming my heart and yours. We talked a few weeks ago about having the humility to let our values line up with, with the Lord's. And I wrote this down. Here's another helpful thing, I believe. Obedience is proven when you disagree. And you will disagree. So uh, I'm going to say something that will shock you. Uh, I am imperfect. If you don't believe me, ask Megan. She will give you examples and evidence. But I'm an imperfect person, and uh, I already know that you are, and that's okay. We're friends. God is good, amen? But in imperfection, it shouldn't surprise us that our best uh, intentions, our best understanding, the way that we view the world, our understanding of right and wrong, all of those things are subject to being imperfect also. But God, who is perfect, it means that we're going to butt heads. If I'm imperfect and my attitudes are imperfect and my, my thoughts are imperfect, my logic is imperfect, and the creator of the universe, his thoughts are above my ways, he's far greater than I am, it only makes sense that we would clash from time to time. 
And this is when obedience is tested. It's that belief of, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm following God passionately, wanting to grow, and I'm going to trust that he knows better than I do. I'm going to trust that what makes sense to me is up for grabs, up for debate, and if he says otherwise, I'm going to realign my thoughts. I'm going to change my perspective. Our life passionately pursuing God with a desire to grow in your relationship with him, I do believe it leads to a heart transformation. And in the same way as I mentioned with Megan and I and the way that we're trying to raise the kids is we want the kids to make great choices because there's a love between us and them that they trust our values. They trust that we actually sort of, that we, our best intentions are for them. We don't have ulterior motives. We don't want them to be suffocated by life, but instead we want them to thrive in life. We, we want them to trust that, that, you know, as their parents, we want what's best for them. And so they, they want to obey. They want to get in line with us because they truly believe it's for the best. That is the call to believers, is to believe that God's will is for the best. It is to not bring the cow to the playground because you know it's crazy instead of just not doing it because there's a sign. And the truth is, as we think about obedience and what it means for us, uh, you know, it, it should be enough. I'm, I'm going to say it should be enough to just say, because God said so. I, I believe that that should be enough. If the creator of the universe says A, and I'm thinking B, I need to give up my B and get with his A. I believe that that is an accurate statement and a fair perspective to have. That God saying, because I said so, should be enough. But God in his love and God in his kindness, he goes much further than that. God doesn't just say, because I said so, and then leave it there, even though he could, even though he'd be perfectly right to do so, even though it'd be perfectly appropriate for him to do so. In his love and his compassion and his gentleness with us, he goes a step further and teaches us why he teaches us there's a better way. And one of the things that we can do and the trap that we can fall into is we can approach the Bible as a rule book. And if you approach the Bible as a rule book, it's very confusing when you start to read it because the Bible is not a rule book. It doesn't read like a rule book. And this is God's way of saying, I'm going to tell you what I need you to do. I need you to obey me, but I'm going to give you the story as to why. And if you read the Bible, you'll see story after story of, of God giving instructions. Sometimes people will obey and you'll see how it works out for them and it works out for the best. There are other times when God will give instructions and he'll give commands and people won't live up to those commands and you'll be able to see for yourself that it just doesn't work out. You'll be able to see for yourself. And so God in his grace and God in his goodness, he doesn't just give us a very short list of rules and say, go do it. He elaborates, he expands on the thought and he teaches us that there is indeed a better way. I read just recently that of the whole Bible, 43% of the Bible is narrative. Talking about the literary genre of the Bible, 43% is narrative, 33% is poetry, and just 24% is what you would call discourse. So if you've got three quarters of the Bible that is poetry and is story and is a narrative account of what's going on, that means that poetry and stories, they appeal to emotions. They get our attention by, they get us thinking, they get us involved, and they, they sort of lay out examples for us. And they, you know, the poetry, especially of the Psalms, it just evokes emotions in our lives. And that's how God chose to reveal himself through the Bible. And of course, there are those moments where there is that, uh, there are that, that discourse, and there is that time for God to lay down the rules. But it is deeply embedded within the story of his goodness. 
is deeply embedded with the reconciliation story of the Bible about how God is going to fix the problem that you and I have in our relationship with him is that commitment that God has and that incredible grace that he shows by saying, you know what, here's my Bible, here's my story. I want you to read and I want you to be able to see when I tell you do this or don't do that, I want you to watch and I want you to observe how it works out for people that pay no attention for me and how it works out for people that do. And if uh, we're going to spend just a few seconds and we're going to look at what's possibly the most famous or well-known example of the list of the rules, the Ten Commandments uh, from the Old Testament. And you can find these in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we're going to look at a list that's um, somewhat abbreviated. But if you wanted the full version of flesh that out, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And so I'm going to rattle these off. um, And keep in mind that these were given, embedded in the story. So the first commandment, you must not have any other God but me. Second, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Now, please keep in mind... This is a nation of Israel that had just been rescued from slavery out of Egypt, where having gods before the God of the Old Testament was very, very common. Making idols was very, very common. And so this is God saying, what you saw in the world around you as being normal religion, you now need to change. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by not keeping it holy. Keep in mind, these are former slaves that shortly before that were living in absolute slavery in an absolute horrific situation. The idea that they're now getting a day off every seven days is a remarkable sign of grace and God being loving and compassion to these former slaves that now you're going to get a day off once a week. They'd never heard of such a thing. But fast forward a thousand years to the time of Jesus and it just become another religious obligation. Honor your father and mother. You must not commit murder. How do you think Moses felt when he heard that one? As he thought about the murder that he committed in the book of Exodus and how it meant that he had to flee his homeland, he had to flee the life that he knew, he had to flee from his people, and he had to go and live in hiding for 40 years. I bet that one hit Moses personally. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not be envious of your neighbor. And so that list of the Ten Commandments as they were given, yes, it was a list of rules. There's an expectation that there's obedience to those rules. But they're deeply embedded within the story. They're deeply embedded within God's revelation of this is my goodness, this is my love for you, this is my compassion for you, this is my goodness towards you. This is how I want you to live. I find it very interesting that the Ten Commandments, they were never given to one individual. It was never just, hey, you, here's ten things. You need to go do them. But it was given to the community. So this means is if, if you can imagine, if I was surrounded by people and I'm hearing this said for the first time as Moses is relaying what the Lord showed him, do not steal. It's not me hearing it alone, but there's a group of people listening to this. And as the person next to me hears, do not steal, What that also means for me is, God doesn't want me being stolen from. As I hear, don't lie, what I can also hear is that God wants people to tell me the truth. God wants wants people to treat me with respect. When it says, do not commit adultery, it also means that God doesn't just want me to behave myself, it also means that God wants me to have a healthy relationship. And for the other people in my, you know, the, my spouse in my relationship to treat me with honor. 
It's not just written for one person, it's written for the whole community. So if it's good for me, it's also good for them, which means that the goodness bounces back to me. This is not just a list of do not do, it's also a list of, hey, this is how I want people to treat you. I want people to treat you with respect. I want people to treat you with dignity. I don't want people assaulting you. I don't want people getting involved in your marriage that have no business being involved in your marriage. I don't want people lying to you. I don't want people stealing from you. It was never given as this one-way street. And consequently, God's love for me teaches me his love for others. And this idea of obedience and being obedient to God and being passionate in that pursuit of obedience as we start to learn what it means to be obedient to God and how it affects the people around us, how we relate to the people around us, it also teaches us, you know what, this is actually how God feels about me. It's not just a simple case of don't do that, it's that God has, does not want that to happen to me. God does not want people to treat me that way. And from this, we can really learn something about the Father heart of God, about his love for his children as he tells them how to interact with each other and how to do it with respect and how to do it with love and how to do it with dignity towards each other. And I don't know about any other parents here, either at home or uh, whether you're here in person, but I knew the Father heart of God. I knew about it, um, you know, just being a Christian and reading my Bible and all the stuff. But then I had kids. And really, the idea that God being a father is um, it's something that's dotted throughout the Old Testament, but it was really Jesus that introduced this idea that, uh, uh, you know, as his people, we should approach God as father. Um, something that Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. And then John says at the beginning of his book that uh, those who believe and have accepted Jesus can uh, have the right to be called children of God. This is an incredible thing that Jesus initiated to be able to approach God as Father. And the language used isn't formal, it's more familiar. So it's actually dad. To really approach God as dad um, is something truly incredible. But there's something that happened when I had my own kids that I started to appreciate this Father heart of God even more than, uh, than I had previously. There was something about having my own kids that helped teach me that what it means when God says he's a father and you know, how it is for a parent to love a child, something that I had no idea. But what I learned in this is that there are really two things. In, for the home to be happy and functional and going well, um, two things need to happen. One is that the kids need to remember that mom and dad are in charge. When kids forget that, it's a bad day. And the other thing is that the kids need to get on with each other and treat each other with dignity and decency. So when Jesus says, there are two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Remember, dad's in charge. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your brother and sister like they're actually pretty good and people you actually love and people you care about instead of somebody that just won't play hungry, hungry hippos with you. This works completely in faith. That lesson that I've learned just in parenthood is that you know, when kids remember that you know, Megan and I are in charge of the house, it goes better for everybody. It's a better day in the wood house. When the kids are actually agreeable with each other and they're nice and they're playing nicely together, it's better in the wood house. And just this week, um, Megan was able to be here at the church to be a part of the baptism service that we had midweek. Um, and so I was at home with the kids, just, uh, just us, and the boys, just played incredibly well together. Now, this doesn't always happen. Remember, I said we don't live in a hippie commune. Um, but the boys played so well together. They were agreeable. They were swapping. They were sharing. They got together with these papers and pencils, and they were making these comics. It was awesome. It was really cool. 
And again, I had this understanding of the father heart of God as I just found the joy in watching my kids being good to each other and playing nicely and being agreeable. And it made me realize, you know what? When we are good to each other and we are decent to one another and we treat each other with respect, how much does that mean to a loving father? How much does that mean to a loving father? And as I watched those boys playing so nicely, so agreeably, it was awesome. I didn't need to step in and start laying down the Ten Commandments. But rather, the fruit of the Spirit was just coming out of these kids as they're being good to each other, as they're treating each other nicely, as they're being decent as they go about through life. And I thought, they're being obedient. I'm not stepping in as lawgiver. I'm not stepping in as rule giver. I'm just lovingly watch my kids just treating each other with the decency and respect that Meg and I are trying to teach them every day. There's a... Um, a strange habit that I have, and it is a strange habit, and so I own it. Um, the strange habit that I have is every now and again, I like to listen to what atheists have to say. Um, the reason being is not because I think they're gonna change my mind on anything, but it's rather, um, this is what influences a lot of culture. A lot of unbelievers in the culture will look to these guys for um, insight and understanding, especially college kids will look to these atheists for you know, their version of wisdom. And so it's helpful to touch base with them from time to time. Uh, and one of them did a TED talk recently. It caught my attention, the title, so I decided to watch it. And the idea was, uh, it was how science can prove morality. How science can prove morality. Uh, and in a sense, he was correct. And he picked up on this point that is often given that uh, you know, Christians will often say that you know God is for real because we have a sense of morality. How do we know what's right and wrong? Well, because you know, God kind of hardwired that in us. And I believe that. I'm completely confident in that. But this guy made the point that you don't need God to get there. That if you look at the world around you and you analyze you know, sort of what's right and wrong and what works out and what doesn't work out, uh, you don't need a religious perspective or a faith perspective to get there. It just kind of unfolds and makes sense. Now, he was trying to make the point of, so we can discard God because it all just makes sense anyway. I took it to mean that God's level of obedience, God's commandments, God's rules, God's law, God's way, the teaching of Jesus, it's all self-evident that it works. I, I didn't take from it like, oh, wow, yeah, I mean, maybe this guy. No, I, it wasn't that. But it was like, yes, you're proving our point that when you say this is how it's going to go, this works out better when you just do what God says. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, you're exactly right. This is completely self-evident. And when I say self-evident, I mean it proves itself. When we live in line with God and we live within line with what he teaches, life flat out goes better. It just goes better. If you have any question about this at all, I want to ask you, think back to those Ten Commandments. How many problems would be solved in the world today if we didn't lie to each other? How many problems in the world today if we didn't want to steal each other's stuff and we weren't wrapped up in envy? How many of the world's problems would get fixed if we would have a biblical idea of marriage and that's the only kind of sexuality we had going on? The problems that would be solved are enormous. It's self-evident. So logic isn't the reason this doesn't happen. Because logically, it's all laid out. Logically, it's all on the page. So it comes to Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that it's his kindness 
is intended to turn you from your sin. See, if it's not the logic that God's way is better than my way, if it's not the self-evident nature of if I only I would have listened to what God had to say, things would have worked out better. If that's not it, I want to lean on this verse and believe it is by reminding myself of the goodness and the kindness and the love of God, and that is what's going to change my heart. It is inviting the Holy Spirit to come, get involved, get in my heart, teach me a better way, clean me up, so that it is the fruit of the Spirit that just comes coming out of my life. It is not me trying my best to live up to the rules, but it is me passionately pursuing God, asking Him to have me in a growing relationship, so that this just becomes more and more natural and more and more of an instinct in my life life, that I'm not obeying God because I have a fear, and I feel I have to, and an obligation that I'm half-heartedly trying to do, but he has truly shown me and taught me a better way, and I am trusting that he knows what's best, not that I know best, that his ways are indeed better than my ways. If you were to ask me what role the rules play, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I would say that this is what God says and he knows better than I do. Secondly, I'd say that behind every rule, every commandment, every law in the Bible, look for the Father heart of God. If you ask me the role of the rules, I'd say that look around and see for yourself that he's telling the truth. I would also say that I hope he does such a powerful work in my heart that my instinct is to do his will. I got a couple of questions for you, and maybe these are worth writing down, and hopefully have a chance this week to think through these and pray through these. But the first one is, what has God's love taught me about His love for others? What has God's love taught me about His love for others? We think about how God has shown that kindness that we just read about from Romans. As God has shown me His love, as God has shown His incredible compassion, incredible grace to me, What does that teach me about how much he loves others? Because the Ten Commandments weren't given to one individual, it's given to the entire community. So if God has shown this love for me, if God has given me second chance after second chance, what does that teach me about how he wants to love others? And what does that mean for me? A second question, to find joy in obedience, do I need to read the Bible differently? I've mentioned already, I think daily Bible reading is a cornerstone habit for a believer to have in their life. Uh, I don't think we need to put any wild expectations, but I'll say again, one verse out of the Bible is better than no verse out of the Bible. So um, I highly encourage you, um, start some kind of Bible plan or some kind of deliberate, I'm going to read the Bible every day. And as you do, do you need to read it differently? Have you approached the Bible as a rule book? And instead of approaching a rule book, do you need to approach it as, you know what, I'm going to look for the stories of grace, the stories of compassion, the stories of second chance, what I can learn about obedience, how it works out in people's lives. I believe if we do, it will blow our minds as we see how God just continues to love and forgive and show goodness and compassion and grace all over the place in the whole Bible. And one, of, um, one of the things that we say as Christians is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That phrase has implications. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that he is higher than I am. It's to say that he's better than I am. It's to say that he knows better than I know. And it's to say, I trust him. I trust that 
the better way that he teaches in the Bible is the better way I want my life to be because my way hasn't worked out so well. To say Jesus is Lord is to say, you know what? His way, not my way. His will, not my will. And we say this as we talk about people becoming Christians for the very first time, we say that they made Jesus Lord of their life. And that phrase has massive implications. It means that an individual gives up the right to be the hero of their story anymore. It means that somebody's saying, if they're making Jesus Lord, they're saying, Jesus, I want you to be the author of my story. I'm not doing it anymore. It's saying, I wanna be a part of what you're doing. It's not a small thing. Becoming a Christian, making that decision to have Jesus as Lord of your life, it is the biggest and best decision I believe someone can make. If we're gonna clap, we may as well clap like we mean it. Come on, somebody. The biggest and best decision we can ever make. For me, I made that decision 17 years ago. And I've never regretted that choice. I'm not gonna stand here and lie to you and say it was plain sailing. There were ups, there were downs, but I never regretted my decision to follow Jesus. And I wanna give everyone here an opportunity, an invitation, that if this is the moment, if this is the day, where you're ready to say, you know what? I'm not living for God. I'm not living with Jesus as Lord of my life, but I wanna start today. I'm ready to start. I'd love to pray for you. I don't invite everyone here, if you just close your eyes and bow your heads, let's just give some privacy to everyone around you and just give everyone a chance to focus on what really matters right now. But if you would say, you know what? I'm ready, I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to make him Lord of my life. If this is you, I'd love to pray for you. If you could just put your hand in the air, just so I know who I'm praying for. Amen, thank you. Anyone else? I promise we won't embarrass you. At home, you can click the button that says, I raise my hand. And when we pray in a moment, I'd love to know who we're praying for. Anybody else here today? Amen. Amen. Come on, Word of Life Church. Let's celebrate people making the biggest and best decision. And we're going to pray a prayer together. I invite everyone here to pray. The words are going to be on the screen. I'll say a line and then you can say a line back. And at home, here in person, if you're praying this for the first time, I'm going to believe with you that something starts to change when you pray a prayer like this. So come on, everybody. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's one more time celebrate.